this month's episode of A Dram and a Drush, where the water of life meets the tree of life. This month, I'm delighted to be welcoming to the podcast Rabbi Charles Arian. He serves at Congregation Kehila Shalom in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and he's been the rabbi there for the past 10 years. Charles was ordained at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. He later affiliated with the conservative movement after working with the Hillel Foundations. He was the founding chair of the Ethics Commission when he was working and living in Norwalk, Connecticut. And he has spoken and written widely on Christian-Jewish relations in particular, a particular interest of his. And he's also something of a bourbon expert, which is why he is my guest today. We met at a Clow Fellowship retreat of Rabbis Without Borders, where we connected in late conversation over our interest in would you believe it? All things whiskey. So welcome, Rabbi Charles Arian, to a Dram and a Drash. Wonderful to have you here today. And we're going to jump right in. What is your Dram? What are we starting with today? Uh, maker's Mark, just the, the standard uh, 90 proof Maker's Mark. And um, why is that your Dram? Tell us a little bit about uh, Maker's Mark. It's uh, quite a you know, commonly known widely available bourbon. Uh, why are we uh, starting with that as our dram? Well, um, a, a couple of reasons. One is that um, I've been to the Maker's Mark Distillery three times, um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, and um, for many of us who are bourbon enthusiasts, uh, Maker's Mark is kind of like our gateway drug. It's, it's the first quality bourbon that a lot of people try. Um, it's been around since the 1950s. Um, and it's, um, you know, it's a good quality bourbon that's widely available. I mean, pretty much any liquor store in the country or any bar in the country will have it. Um, and it's fairly accessible. It's, it's 90 proof. So it's, you know, it's solid. It's not it's not a weak drink, but because it's a weeded bourbon, um, and we you might want to get into that at some point. But um, so it's um, it's a little bit milder and a little sweeter than some other bourbon. So it's more it's more accessible as a sort of you know uh, first quality bourbon for a lot of people. Absolutely. Well, so let's get into that a little bit. Uh, you said it's a, a wheated bourbon. We're going to have some people who are listening who are here because they love whiskey and they know a fair amount about it, and others who are here to meet you and to hear the stories and are getting a little bit of a, a whiskey education along the way. So what makes a bourbon a, whis a wheated bourbon? All right. So um, bourbon, in order to, to be bourbon, is very heavily regulated. Um, and uh, it, the, what's called the mash bill. So um, it's made of a combination of different grains. But the mash bill has to be at least 51% corn. Um, and they're usually around 70, 75% corn. And then um, it pretty much always has malted barley because the malted barley is necessary to begin the fermentation. And then the rest of the mash bill, uh, historically, most bourbons have had rye for the third grain in the mash bill. 
Um, but, uh, but a weeded bourbon has wheat instead of rye. So, you know, if you think of the difference between, let's say, rye bread and whole wheat bread, um, both are good. Uh, but they have very different tastes. And, you know, I mean, if you're, if you're having pastrami sandwich, you definitely want rye bread. But if you're having, say, grilled cheese, you probably want wheat bread. Um, and so uh, weeded bourbons are a little bit milder in taste than, uh, than rye bourbons are. Right. Right. Well, I have a little drama here. Uh, I know you have there as well. So uh, an opportunity for us just to, to taste and to describe for those who might not have had Maker's Mark before a little bit about what some of the main notes are that we come uh, from the nose, from the tasting of this particular bourbon. You know, aside from the sweetness that comes through, one of the first things that I pick up uh, is almost like a, a kind of a caramelized banana. I get quite quite strong banana notes out of this particular bourbon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now that you mention it, I mean, you pick up, I pick up a lot of vanilla um, and, you know, a lot of oak. Um, I mean, I would say the two sort of predominant uh, smells that I get out of it are vanilla and oak. But it does, it also, it has a very distinctive nose. I mean, if, if, if you, once you've had Maker's Mark, if you're used to it, um, you know, if you give me, you know, five blind drams, I can, I'm sh pretty sure I can always pick out the maker's mark. I might not be able to identify the others, but maker's mark definitely has a very distinctive nose to it. Mm. And it does have, as like you said, that kind of there's a softness that has a has a also quite a distinctive mouthfeel. We don't sometimes it's a strange thing for for people who are not used to describing whiskey. There's you know what you smell, what you taste, but there's also there's a, a mouthfeel, and uh, and and that there's something that's quite different to some of the other uh, Kentucky bourbons that I might be familiar with in this particular mouthfeel. And is that a, a product of the wheat to some degree? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, there's a certain, I mean, what's interesting to me about it is it definitely has a thick mouthfeel, you know, and, and generally like the, the higher the proof, the thicker the mouthfeel, but for a 90 proof, it has a much thicker mouthfeel than a, than a lot of other 90 proof which tastes more thin, more watery. Um, and, I, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, that could be a product of, um, of, of a fairly low barrel proof, right? Because, you know, the, the higher the proof that it comes out of the barrel, the less water that they have to add to proof it down to 90. So, you know, one of the products that you can get um, is, is Maker's Mark barrel proof. Um, it's really one of the best buys in bourbon these days because not that much more expensive than the standard 90 proof. Um, and it varies by batch, but it's usually about 112 or 114 proof as it comes out of the barrel. So I think, so they're adding less water to prove it down to 90, whereas it was coming out at you know, 120, 125, it would have more water in it. 
Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. So Maker's Mark, is, as you said, it's, most people, I have my just a, a little mini bottle here, uh, but the, the Maker's Mark bottle, it's quite distinctive. It always has the, um, you know, the wax top on it. Yeah, we've right. got a slightly larger bottle over there. Uh, and for many years, this, the, the, the basic Maker's Mark, that's been the whiskey. As you said, they've been around for a long time. And they were putting out one product. And then in more recent years, they've introduced a few more varieties, uh, but this is still kind of their centerpiece. And I think that that's uh, interesting. A lot of um, distilleries are experimenting with all kinds of different releases and finishing it this way and experimenting. Maker's Mark seems to be uh, have this sort of very core center to it that is uh, its hallmark. I, Perhaps you can say something about that and the way they go about making their whiskey. I, I just find it it's it's interesting and a little different to some of the other Kentucky distilleries that are right there in the same region. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's a, it's very traditional. I mean, as you said, for a long time, the standard ninety proof maker's mark was it. Um, and then about probably twelve years ago, they added maker's forty six, which. Um, is it's it's dumped and then put in the barrel with toasted French oak staves for another six months. Um, and it's also a little higher proof. I think it's a 94 proof. So it's, um, it, you know, it's, it's the same whiskey with a little bit more oak to it. Um, and then they started, they released the, the, the barrel proof and they have also a makers 101, um, which is all the same whiskey. It's just, you know, hot, higher proof, um, but it's it's the identical whiskey. And then lately, they've started different experiments with, you know, different types of barrels and different. I, I'm not personally familiar with with any of those, so I can't speak to it. But um, one of the things that is unique about Maker's Mark is that you know, so so for most of your larger brands, um, particularly when they're when it's what's known as an NAS, which means a no age statement. Um, so straight bourbon, if it doesn't have an age statement on it, it has to be at least four years old. Um, if it's less than four years, it has to it has to have an age statement. Um, but usually if there's no age statement, um, it's not much older than four years. Um, but what, what they do since the, um, the height in the warehouse, if you go to Kentucky, you see that the warehouses are, are quite tall and they're usually about nine levels tall um, and they're not heated or cooled. So that um, the higher the barrel is in the warehouse, the more extreme the temperature swings are, and therefore it tends to age more quickly and the, the barrel effect is more pronounced. Um, you know, so in order to, to even things out, they'll put, you know, a certain percentage of barrels from the top shelf and some from the middle shelf, top level, middle level, bottom level, and then the tasters come in and they say, ah, oh, you know, it needs a few higher, few more higher level barrels or, you know, it's it's too oaky. So we'll put in some lower level barrels and so on. 
Maker's Mark is, to my knowledge, the only major distillery where they rotate the barrels. Um, that is to say, every barrel starts out at the top level, and every so often it moves down. And then, you know, when when they've determined that it's ready, it's on the barrel shelf, and then it's dumped and and proofed and mixed. Um, so that's one of the unique things about it is that they don't they don't need to like even it out by putting in, you know, barrels of aged on on different levels. Um, the other thing is that, you know, whiskey geeks will tell you that um, the distillery makes a difference. Right. If you take the exact same recipe um, and make it in two different distilleries, it'll taste differently. Um so that um, when Maker's Mark had to increase their production, rather than um, enlarge the actual distillery line, what they did is they built an identical copy. Um, and then, as, as I understand, they're now on their third identical uh, copy of the production line. Um, you know, it's also, it's an interesting place to visit because you can see the production from beginning to end. I mean, you can actually go in um, and stick your finger in the fermenting mash, um, which is, and I, I've done, you know, all of the, the entire bourbon trail and, and Maker's Mark is the only place where they let you do that. And it's an interesting taste. It, it, it tastes like a kind of somewhat lightly alcoholic porridge, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. you, you know, so you can see the entire production and then, you know, you spoke about the red wax. I mean, this is hand dipped. Um, it's not done by a machine. They have a, they have a, 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 a dipping line. Um, and they're most of the, most of the workers on that line are women. And many of them have been doing it 20, 30 years. Um, and one of the sort of sticks that they have for people who are visiting is that you can dip your own bottle. That's great. That's great. Now, it's wonderful. It's a lot of interesting information. I think that duplication of, you know, the still and sort of separating that out just to try and maintain, it really feels, I mean, the whole process of rotating barrels, uh, you know, moving barrels around is, is a lot of work. It's backbreaking work. It feels to me that, you know, they clearly have a formula, you know, from decades ago, it works for them. And it's yeah. like, if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And there's kind of that sustaining of that tradition, which is just a, an interesting part of the story, which I, I'm glad to appreciate because, uh, you know, when, when people see Maker's Mark all over the place, you know, you don't necessarily appreciate the art, uh, the the skill that's gone into creating that particular product. Uh, so let's, uh, we're going to sort of shift gears a little bit. That's the dram. Now we want to get to the drush. You talked about having gone around the, the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. That's uh, certainly on my bucket list. I've not had a chance to visit in person yet. And uh, when you were doing that, at least uh, some of the time you were traveling with uh, a travel partner that perhaps uh, folks might not assume uh, would be a, a likely travel partner for a rabbi on uh, the, the Bourbon Trail. So tell us a little bit about that. And then I would love to hear the backstory as to uh, how you met and, um, and and the experiences that you had together. Right. So um, 
my wife, Kelly, and I did the Bourbon Trail um, over two summers um, with my friend, uh, Father Mark Scott OCSO, who's a Trappist monk. Um, and, um, you know, we've known each other for, for some time, but my, my wife is originally from Kentucky. Um, so for a while we were visiting Kentucky every summer and, um, you know, she would give me like two days for, uh, distillery visiting. Um, so, um, Mark was at the time at the Abbey of Gethsemane in uh, Trappist, Kentucky. Um, the name of the town is not accidental, I suppose. And um, Trappist is near Bardstown. So um, it's near a number of the distilleries. Um, it's quite near to Maker's Mark um, and a little bit. Uh, further away is Heaven Hill, um, and Jim Beam is is near there as well, as well as um, the um, 1792 distillery, which we actually never visited. Actually, um, it, it's open for tours very inconsistently, and oddly enough, we've never been to 1792, um, even though my wife has a cousin who works there. Um <laughs> But uh, Father Mark, at the time, was the um, editor of the Cistercian Studies Quarterly, uh, which was edited out of the Abbey of Gethsemane. So that's where he was um, assigned. Um, so uh, he would take a day and travel with us as we visited the distilleries. Right. Now, your friendship with him didn't start in Kentucky. Uh, so uh, I, I'm really I think one of the things I find fascinating about some of what you've shared with me in the past, and I, I'd love to hear more about it today, is, uh, again, when people sort of make assumptions about, you know, who we travel with or wh who we study with and what influences uh, uh, our thinking or our spirituality, one might not assume that a rabbi uh, would have been inspired by the time he spent in a monastery with the monks. Uh, so let's hear a little bit about the uh, the backstory as to how this uh, particular monk became a friend. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, uh, Mark's presence at Gethsemane was completely serendipitous. I mean, I had actually been to Gethsemane uh, before Mark was there um, and had been to Maker's Mark before uh, Mark was there as well. But um, in uh, the 96-97 academic year, um, I spent uh, 10 months at the um, Abbey of New Clairvaux in Vina, California. It's a Trappist Abbey um, in Vina, California, that actually is a daughter house of Gethsemane. Um, Gethsemane is um, the second oldest Trappist Abbey in the country. It goes back to the 1850s. Um, and it was the home uh, abbey of uh, Thomas Merton, who's uh, probably the most well-known Trappist in American history. And... Um, so I had um, decided at the time that I needed to take some time off from the active rabbinate. Um, I was single at the time. So, um, you know, it was something that was feasible for me to do. Um, and um, 
so I spent 10 months uh, living at the Abbey of New Clairvaux, um, mostly doing my own writing, reading, et cetera, et cetera. But my sort of quid pro quo arrangement with the Abbey was that I'd be available to do some teaching for the monks on an as-needed basis. Um, so once every three months or so, I gave a lecture on Sunday night. Um, but, um, Mark was, um, his position at the Abbey at the time was, um, director of novices, but they appointed him as my liaison to the monastery to sort of look after me and, you know, deal with any issues that might arise or whatever. And, um, Mark had a master's degree in Bible from the, um, Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome. Um, so his Hebrew is quite good, um, but he'd only studied um, the Bible. He'd never studied any rabbinic literature, uh, which he wanted to sort of, you know, dip his toes into uh, into that a bit. Um, so we studied Mishnah together in Hebrew uh, once a month, once a week, rather. Um, we did all of Tractate Brachot, which deals with the laws of prayer. Um, and then we started on Tractate of Vote, which is sort of ethical teaching, certainly, you know, good material for a, for a Trappist monk. Um, you know, he also, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a great story because I was also, um, I went to Reno, Nevada every other weekend to be the, interim part-time rabbi at the conservative synagogue in Reno. It's about three hours away. Um, and so for Passover, I had to sell their hametz, the leaven good that, that they're not allowed to own. And I mean, there's a whole history of that practice and Jewish distillers in Poland, because that practice was probably actually initiated uh, because of Jewish distillers. Um, but at any rate, you know, so I figured, you know, I've got 30 monks I can, uh, and I need to find a non-Jew. Okay. Not too difficult. Right. But the, the hmm. morning that I was supposed to, uh, sell the Hamates to father Mark, he came to me and said, I, I, I can't do it. And I said, why not? And he said, well, you know, I've been studying, with you and I'm trying to learn how to think like a rabbi. And um, as a Trappist, I have a vow of poverty, which means I can't own anything. Uh, so <laughs> if I buy the Hametz, it's not a valid sale. Um, you know, so he was right, but, you know, I mean, I'm not a hundred percent sure he's right. I don't know what the status of a Catholic religious vow is in Jewish law. But certainly, I mean, the intention to actually purchase it was not there. So I, I finally wound up selling the or using the, the rabbi in uh, Sacramento, which was the nearest major city, as the agent for the sale of Hametz instead. <laughs> That's a wonderful story. And of course, like how ironic, surrounded by not just Christians, but 
monks no less and through that the the challenge of trying to figure this out uh and of course i the you've done a lot of work over the years in terms of jewish christian relations i know it's a, an interest of yours and something that you've you've worked with and uh, so uh, did that come out of the time you spent at that monastery uh, or was that something that pre-existed and has always been an no, interest it, of yours? No, it, 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 it predated. I mean, um, my undergraduate degree is from Georgetown, which is a Jesuit school, the oldest Catholic university in the country. Um, and um, my mentor at Georgetown was a Jesuit priest, um, the late father, James Walsh, S.J., passed away about seven years ago, and he was also a Catholic biblical scholar. He he had his PhD um, in Hebrew scriptures uh, from Harvard. He, he um, wrote his dissertation with Frank Cross um, on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and, you know, Jim in many ways was my inspiration for entering the rabbinate, um, as well as I mentioned Thomas Merton. Um, you know, and this is the great irony is that is that while when I was a senior, I took a course um, in American short stories and we read Salinger, um, uh, Franny and Zoe and Ray's High the Roof Beam Carpenters. And um, there's a lot of um, allusions in Salinger's later later work to both um, Zen and Taoism. Um, and so in order to understand the, the, the Zen and Tao illusions, the professor um, had us read some of Thomas Burton's work on Zen and Taoism. Um, and I, I mean, the name Thomas Burton, I knew I had heard it before, but I had no idea that these works on, on Zen and Tao were written by Trappist monks. Um, but I became, you know, just charmed uh, by the writing style of Merton. And I started reading more and more. And ironically, one of the first books that I picked up of Merton's was um, his secular journal, where he was struggling with his decision whether or not to enter the monastery um, at the same time that I was struggling with my decision whether or not to become a rabbi or go to law school. Um, and so, you know, to a certain extent, it was reading Merton on Zen and Taoism at a Catholic school um, that led me to the rabbi. Wow. Wow. Right. The inspiration is the journey, the path we take. It's it's really wonderful and intriguing. Right. And it's all about the spiritual life and the inner life and that journey. And so, right, we often find those echoes in other people's spiritual journeys and, and traditions. Uh, certainly there have been many among us who have been inspired by the time we've spent studying in other traditions and the interactions we have. Uh, I, I'm also a, a passionate partner in uh, all kinds of interfaith interactions, uh, both in Massachusetts and previously where I was in Connecticut. And I, I love you know, I, I love doing that work, not so much because I'm trying to look at all the ways we're the same, 
because the distinctiveness of all of these traditions is what makes it beautiful. But I'm fascinated and I love learning with people because the desire to seek and to ask those questions about the human journey and the experience and how we might be part of something that's bigger and beyond ourselves, that's the the commonality. And uh, being in conversation with people who have a, a different flavor to their particular path helps us to reflect on our own so much more deeply. And I, I love those opportunities. Sure. And it, and it is, I mean, you know, the, the tragedy uh, to my mind of, of interfaith is that it often boils down to we're all the same. And, you know, uh, you have Saturday, we have Sunday, right? You have rabbis, we have priests, um, you know, your clergy wears funny hats, our clergy wears funny robes. Um, but we're not all the same. But but the difference can actually enrich us. You know, and and I mean to me it it is it is a live question. I mean, there's there's a statement in the Torah, you know, ta'amin, Right. When they say there's wisdom among the Gentiles, believe it. When they say there's Torah among the Gentiles, do not believe it. And, you know, to me, it's an open question. If if I study the Tanakh with a Jesuit or a Trappist. Right. And their insights on my text, is that Torah or not? And it's an open question, but there's no doubt that I have learned so much. I, I mean, one of the, I mean, my congregants hear me say this all the time, right? Because, you know, they will say, well, Rabbi, I mean, you know, I'm a good person, but bad things happen to me or whatever, right? And, and um, you know, Father Wall said to me one day, there's no reward and punishment in the Bible. There's no reward and punishment in the Bible. What, what there is is the doctrine of consequences, but there's not the doctrine of reward and punishment, right? But the consequences are corporate. They're not individual, you know, and, and, and how you translate that pastorally is, is, you know, is a complicated question. But there's no doubt that, you know, Father Walsh helped me understand our texts in ways that have been very profoundly helpful to me as a rabbi. Okay, right. uh, those points of connection, we never just, just never know where, where they would take us. Uh, I'd like to take a few minutes in the time that we have left just to come back to something, actually a little bit of a different subject because you brought it up briefly and, and really I could have you back for another entire podcast just on this. So it really is just the sort of briefest of nods. But I uh, am also have recently spent some time reading and learning uh, and I don't think I, I've gotten as far as you have in looking at this subject, the history of, of Jews with birth and distilling that you know it's this podcast is about you know Jewish professionals who happen to like whiskey or whiskey professionals who happen to be Jewish and that's because you know these are my two favorite topics to talk about in you know in the world and it's lovely to be able to do that with with others uh, but in having done some historical research you know our connections with this world uh, go back uh, a long way, uh, both in terms of uh, American history and, as you indicated, 
most likely further than that. I, I just uh, wonder if in the broadest brush strokes, you might be able to give a little bit of a sense for people who this is new information to uh, so, some of that, those Jewish points of connection. Right. Well, so, you know, I mean, the, the, the biggest obviously is that, is that Heaven Hill is the um, largest family owned um, distillery in the country. And it's um, it's owned by the Shapiro family. Um, it was founded after Prohibition. Uh, they were already in Kentucky, um, and they were approached, um, you know, for uh, seed money for the distillery. Um, but if you go to the um, to the tasting room to the Heaven Hill Distillery um, in in Bardstown. And if you look up, you'll see in in the beams, um, there's a large uh, star of David. So, you know, you're clearly in a in a in a Jewish owned establishment. But going but and also Buffalo Trace, um, which is owned by uh, the Goldring family of New Orleans. Um, Buffalo Trace, I mean, Buffalo Trace as a distillery goes way, way back um, but it was bought by the Sazerac Company not that long ago, some you know, sometime in the late uh, in 1980s or 1990s. Um, and the Goldring family, which is prominent New Orleans Jewish family, owned that. But if you go back way further than that into the 1800s, for example, the the uh, bourbon brand I.W. Harper. Um, was founded by Isaac Wolf Bernheim. The IW stands for Isaac Wolf, um, but he, all right, there you've got it. But he <laughs> decided, probably correctly at the time, um, that naming a bourbon IW Bernheim would probably, you know, be uh, detrimental to its sale potential. So he picked the name Harper as a nice uh, Goyesha sounding name. But but just outside of, uh, of Bardstown, there's the Bernheim Forest, which is a, a beautiful um, forest preserve. Um, and, you know, eventually it all came back because the Bernheim Distillery is now owned by Heaven Hill. Um, and so, uh, they fought, there finally is a, a brand, um, called Bernheim. Um, it's not a bourbon, it's a wheat whiskey, uh, meaning that the mash bill is at least 51% wheat. Um, I've had it, it's great. Um, and it, it was the first wheat whiskey widely available in the American market. Now there's a lot, but Bernheim wheat, you know, is still, um, you know, pretty, you can, it's pretty easy to find if you look for it. Absolutely. I actually think that there's a reason why these bottles happen to be behind me. They are the IW Harker, Harper, which uh, this I actually came across in in uh, Tennessee, uh, in, in Knoxville, Tennessee. It's not so easy to find around me in uh, uh -huh. 
in, in Massachusetts. And this is a Cabernet cask reserve that I've not had a chance to try yet. It's a beautiful bottle. And then uh, the Bernheim original that you were talking about, that's the weeded whiskey. And yeah, I have them up here partly because of that, that you know, he in particular is really kind of a, a such an important part of our of our history. Uh, I, you were studying in Cincinnati. Uh, the library that you studied at at Hebrew Union College uh, stands largely because Bernheim helped to fund the building of that library. That's an interesting piece of history. That. Yeah, yeah, it's a story know, I, for another I, day. Right. I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting because. Um, the the uh, the synagogue that my wife belonged to in Louisville, which is um, at at its Jesherin, um, their sanctuary until a few years ago was known as the Shapiro Sanctuary, um, and it was redone and rededicated some years ago. and And the the Shapiras actually now belong to the Temple, which is the major reform congregation in Louisville, but for a long time, they were members of, of AJ, which is the, the main conservative congregation. But Bernheim, I mean, the one thing that I do know about Bernheim, which is maybe not so widely discussed, is that um, he was a vehement anti-Zionist, which, you know, was not unusual for German-American Jews in the 1880s, 1890s. Um, you know, but he was well known as a very vehement anti-Zionist. Right, right. And I think that's a little bit why he ended up supporting and being part of the, the money that helped to build the Hebrew Union College campus in Cincinnati, because uh, his idea, uh, ideas and feelings about a, a modern Judaism and American Judaism and the opportunities that he saw here in, in America very much aligned with that of Isaac Mayer Wise and this idea sure. of creating an American Judaism. And so he wanted to support that vision. Uh, so that makes a lot of sense. But right, there's there's a, a larger history there to sort of put in context um, so that we can understand where he was coming from. Uh, but uh, as I said, there's so much more to that story. So you'll have to come back to other podcast episodes so that we can get to more of that story sure. along the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Charles, this has been delightful. Uh, I've learned a lot about Maker's Mark that I did not appreciate, I think, before we had an opportunity to talk about it and taste it together. Uh, the, you know, the, the journey that you, you took in your own life and the way it's informed your learning and uh, the, the people you've met along the way uh, really has been wonderful. Thank you for sharing it with us. Uh, and I look forward to the next time we have an opportunity in person to to raise a dram and talk more whiskey. But in the meantime, I'm going to hold up my maker's mark one more time and say to you, L'chaim. L'chaim. So I hope you've enjoyed this month's episode. Again, in our liner notes, uh, and if you're watching on YouTube in the credits at the end as well, you can find all of the links to connect you to Rabbi Arian and also to contact me. I would love your comments and feedback at my website, rabbirg.com. And so until next time, l'chaim.